What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, Breakline community. This is such a treat for me, and it's going to be such a treat for you, too. Annette Revis is one of my closest mentors and advisors. I absolutely love her. She's been a huge supporter of Breakline from the very, very beginning, and it's an absolute delight to have you with us today. Annette, thank thank you you so much for making time to join us. I'm so excited. This is such an honor for me to be able to just speak with you, Bethany. I mean, we've been doing this for a while. And every time I think we learn a little bit more about each other, which is just so fascinating, but also just how important this program is. And I'm in awe of you being able to start this and build this. And every single time these classes go through, it just makes my heart sing. So I'm so glad to be able to be here today. Well, and you've played such a substantive role in our ability to get off the ground and to grow. And so we're very grateful to have your time. And as we kick off here You've spoken in Breakline so many times, and you've had the most amazing career. You joined Facebook when there were, I think, 1,400 employees, stayed with the company for about a decade, left when they had about 40,000 employees. You took C-suite positions at two different companies in the meantime. We just love to hear you articulate the arc of your career. You know, talk to us about the journey that you've taken to get to yeah. where you are today. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I've been so blessed and so lucky. And I started my career actually as a tax accountant, which everyone says, how did you go from being a tax accountant to an HR person? But really, even back in the early days, I was in public accounting and I spent, you know, so much of my time really on the people side of things. So Even the part I loved about being an accountant was about that relationship piece and working very closely with the clients and solving problems for them, along with all the fun I had with recruiting and going on campuses and great stories there. But, you know, I realized that they were never going to make a Black woman a partner. And I remember that day, whenever I tell this story, I literally see myself walking down the street when I just had felt like, you know, and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a partner. I didn't want to be a career manager. I didn't like the tax accounting part so much. What I loved was the relationship and, you know, I was going to learn to golf and the whole spiel. And so when that happened, I had to really shift my career. It was eye-opening because growing up as a Black child, I knew about racism. I knew about the glass ceiling and all those things, but you truly don't know any of those until you're in the middle of it, trying to figure out what's next for you. Spent a bunch of time as an industry doing tech stuff. I didn't like that. Um, And so I went and I had a chance to be a controller for a company. Again, always touching HR, being responsible for the tactical sides, the benefits, but really my secret sauce is coaching those leaders. And so even in the early days, coaching the CEO, coaching the CFO, coaching people and helping them make, giving them my real talk uh, and my tough love real talk to try and just really grow great leaders. And so was in industry for a while doing the accountant thing. And then I was, I had the really honor to run the practice for one of my best friends, a doctor's office. There is nothing more important than taking care of women and bringing babies in the world. And what I learned there was just the miracle of birth. 
I mean, you all, every single human on this is truly a miracle. The miracle of birth, I spent a lot of time with that. I also learned about people that were making choices based on their own checkbook, even though we were a company. And the power of really being able to influence, right, in a space where you weren't the decision maker, it was someone else's money, but you knew what the right things were. And so really being able to influence from there, spent time in HP and Yahoo, and then literally worked my butt off to get, you know, 10 interviews to get a job at Facebook, which literally changed my life. Watching that company go from 1,400 people, where I was the HR business partner for half the company for probably about half my career, honestly. And to get to 40,000 was such a journey and, and so much learning. I worked with the, some of the best, smartest people in the world. That's how Bethany and I met through a man named Don Fall, who is a dear, dear, dear friend and someone I worked with there. But really, it was about family. It was about taking that company from 1,400 people, getting it to be a bigger company, but keeping that culture and those values and the ability to really, for all of us to care deeply about each other while we change the world. And so 10 years into that, I was um, exhausted because every year was dog years. And I thought I was going to retire and go find a beach to live on. And then another friend from there said, no, there's this company in Columbus, Ohio that needs you. And I said, they don't need me. And he said, no, they need you. My Achilles heel. If you need me to do a job, not just anybody, but Annette to do it, I'm you know running for the door. And so moved to Columbus, had a great little apartment. And then this thing called COVID hit. I started my first day. My first day was the first day of COVID there. And absolutely being in a place where you had no one with any shared experiences stuck in an apartment. Um, the job was good in the sense that we did great work. I helped take the company public and was able to really build relationships within, but it's hard to do on Zoom. And so decided instead I'd come home. I spent five weeks in Hawaii. And as Bethany put in the chat, I do want to plan weddings there someday, three more years, but spent five weeks there trying to really find myself I came home and I spent time with Don Fall at a company called Athos. And, you know, that company, my job there was to, quite honestly, I, every day I woke up to figure out how to make him a better leader. The goal when I left that was to make sure that Don could be the best CEO he possibly could be, whether it be there or anywhere else. We decided to shut the company down for lots of different reasons. And so, again, said, am I going to retire or am I going to keep working? <laughs> I have two children. My oldest is a senior in college. My youngest is a freshman in college. And I thought, well, if I could work three more years, it'd be easier, quite honestly, to get the boys through college. My, my biggest goal leaving Facebook when I went there and to leave there was to have enough money so my kids would not have to work during college and that they could leave debt-free. I didn't have that privilege. And you know, I feel like for me, that's the one gift I truly could give them so they could go out in the world and start their own legacy. So three more years of work, I found this company called Envoy. The reason I came to Envoy, and if you notice in my story, everything is mission, passion driven. I don't just take jobs. I think that we all can get lots of different jobs. Like you all can get, you've had a bunch of jobs. What you've done has been amazing. I know. And what you will do is amazing. But for me, I have to do something that touches my soul and that I'm very passionate about. So when I went to Facebook, it really was about that connection, living in a space where you could tell a story on a website that all of your friends and family could see. I'm also a widow. And so every year I'd, when I celebrate my husband, either on his birthday or our anniversary, I celebrate it with all my friends on Facebook. So being there was very important to me. When I went to Root Insurance, I went there because the story they told me was we were going to change how insurance pricing was done. What I didn't know was that Insurance prices are based on the color of your skin, 
where you live, what your zip code is. I have no idea. And they actually had some tech that would allow that to be different. When I went to Athos, we built a core that would help that reads what your muscles are doing. And when I went there, we were going into the military. And the goal was to take those um, folks that, especially the elite Kind of when you think about a Navy SEAL, and some of you may have been or know them, right? They work themselves to their bodies fall apart. Imagine a world where we could help their bodies not fall apart faster, right? We could be there to tell them how to move better and to take care of themselves better. And so that's why I went there. I came to Envoy because I believe deeply, very deeply, that we have to get out of our houses, that the world is, we are not meant to be in our house by ourselves all day staring at a computer screen. And so Envoy is a company that actually has a product that helps people get back into the work safely, especially in a hybrid environment. And so I met the CEO, he and I spent a lot of time together, we clicked. And so I am now the chief people officer here, again, building the team, helping to take us to the next level. And it's great for me because I can actually talk about the product, right? I sell it. We sell it to people like me who are trying to get people back in the office. I think if we don't get people back in the office and we don't do it soon, a lot of things we're going to be reactively dealing with the mess instead of proactively trying to say, what do we need to do to get people back in in a way that they can live their life? And if you kind of read anything on me, you'll see I talk about work-life blend. There is no such thing as work-life balance. Balance means that everything's equal. And some days you have to work harder because you have a project you have to get done. And yes, it might mean you miss dinner or you might miss somebody else might have to pick up your child from daycare or that dance class you wanted to take, you couldn't take. There's going to be other times, for example, in my career at Facebook, I never missed one of the boys' soccer games ever. During the busiest time of the year, we were in calibrations. I ran those calibrations. I scheduled them around my son's soccer game. I was there at three o'clock with coffee for the coach, watching my boy play. And so that's the blend, right? The blend is I make those decisions even now every single day on what is going to work best for my day versus someone guaranteeing me I have work-life balance. So all of those things I can actually do here at Envoy because we are about getting people back into the workplace in a hybrid fashion that allows people to live their best life and also work their best life. Okay. Annette, that was so fantastic. And there's so much that I want to dig in. The first reflection I have, though, is that you're an amazing example of one of Breakline's central tenets, which is excellence is transferable. Starting your career as a tax accountant, having experience in healthcare, then going into tech, health tech, now Envoy, you've just had so many twists and turns and you've outperformed at every, um, every point along the way. One of the things I wanted to follow up on, though, is you said that your secret sauce is to coach leaders and that you, in particular, give them a form of tough love. And I want you all to have a personal anecdote from me in this respect. I was talking to Annette. I was seeking advice from Annette two years ago. I was deeply emotional about something that was happening. And she said, Bethany, stop. Why are you allowing yourself to be treated this way? And it was such an important moment where I had to look at myself and say, you're right. I deserve better than what I'm, than what I'm being presented with right now. So it is so crucial to, to play that role in that. And, and you've been kind enough to advise me and to coach me. Do you find yourself offering patterns of advice and coaching? Like, do you find yourself coming back to the same or similar places across all these companies 
and experiences that you've had? Is there a pattern um, there? And if so, what what is it? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And, and also a good point. I think the pattern is, so I'm unique, both good and bad, right? And I think the pattern is a lot of times people haven't experienced someone like me, which is someone who is confident. I'm so blessed. Um, Bethany put in the note that I come from a military family. My dad was in the military. I still have his army coat with his name on it and his number on it. Like, I'm so proud of that. I remember the day my uncle came home from Vietnam with dolls for me and my sisters. So that experience, that confidence comes from a dad who said, you can do anything, be anything, right? And a lot of times where I'm coaching people is to rise up their confidence. The reason I said that to you was because you were allowing someone to treat you as if you were less than. I never let anyone treat me as if I'm less than. And I actually think in a world where we all can show up and know we are equal, that's the best experience. And so a lot of times it's getting people to really kind of rise up and who they should and need to be. And that's a consistent pattern. And then I think the other thing I I really end up coaching a lot of leaders on, no matter level in the stack, is about intentionality. Say what you mean, do what you mean to say. It's that intentional behavior and rising up to where people should be with that confidence is what I see needs to happen with a lot of leaders. And Annette, you you are the only person I have ever met who said to me with complete clarity, I have never felt imposter syndrome. Literally, I've never, ever heard that from anyone else. (laughs) And I want Breakliners to have your secret sauce with this. Like, how have you inoculated yourself? You talked about the role of your father, you as a young, you know, black girl. And he's saying you can be anything you want to be. I can be any. I mean, he used to tell us all the time. So, you know, imagine a world where you go somewhere, you're, starting a new school, second grade, and you were the only one that looks like you, whatever that is, right? Imagine that feeling. Now, now imagine having that for six years, just you and your sisters in the whole school, the only ones that look like you. And we thought we were moving uptown, you know, getting in the white neighborhood, getting in the good house, right? But you're, you live in that world where no one else looks like you. And you come home and kids are, can be unkind, And your parents, and in particular for me, it was my dad that said, welcome. I mean, honestly, to this little girl, you are good enough. You will always be good enough. You will always have to work harder. That was clear. You always will have to work harder and you will always have to show up, but you never put your head down. You never slump your shoulders. And so that's how we were raised. I'm smart enough, right? I mean, I I can learn anything. And if you believe you can learn anything, you can never have imposter syndrome because you know you can learn anything. So I've taught the same to my boys. And it's it's fascinating actually to watch it in the male version because Sam has some, my oldest has some of the challenges I had with people. You're too confident. A lot of people expect black people to have this chip on their shoulder, right? Because we're lucky. Give me a break. Side note, I don't understand a world where the color of your skin decides if you're good or bad anyways. Like that actually is the most fascinating thing to me or the shape of your eyes or the curl in your hair. Like that to me is just fascinating. So, you know, I've taught my kids that those things don't matter. And that's the only way that they can actually have the strongest future possible. And Annette, as as an adult... I mean, you've talked about some of the, your experiences with racism. Some of them have happened as an adult. You talked about 
as a tax accountant, having the realization, I'm not going to make partner here because of the color of my skin, not my performance. And it seems to me like your reaction to that was this, I cannot push past this brick wall. So I'm going to just change directions and do something else to the best of my ability. But how in that moment did you hang on to your, to your confidence? Like that must've been very, very difficult. Yeah, it was hard. I mean, I, I will honestly say, I remember walking downtown San Jose. I remember what I had on. I remember the tears in my eyes trying to kind of figure it out. I think, um, A, I had my dad. My dad was alive then. And I could go back to that base of like, this thing is happening. And I watched it happen to him. He did not get, he worked in community college forever. It changed. I mean, we had, we had to telecast his funeral out into the parking lot because he had thousands of lives he changed. And yet he couldn't get to president because of the color of his skin. So I had watched it growing up. I think you just push through. In the end, it's probably best I didn't wasn't a partner there because I got to work at Facebook. And like, you know, if I do it right, my kids, kids won't have to work. And like, just to be honest. And so in the end, it all kind of goes to where it should go. I'm not one of those people that say things happen as they should just because my husband died when the boys were little, there's no reason the kids don't have a dad. So I don't mean it in that sense. I just mean the door closed and another one opens and you just shift and turn and, and go with the flow. Does it knock you? Absolutely. I would be lying to say if in those moments I didn't feel like, you know, God dang it. Why am I black? Why is this happening? Why can't I just be white so I can just get that job? All I want to do is work. Right. You know, but in the end, you pick yourself up, you keep going and you, you find the next opportunity. And I think the best thing I did was get out of accounting because I'm a much better people person than I ever was an accountant. And so that's the key is when you're in any kind of situation, you can't feel like you can get through finding the people that care deeply about you and support you and believe in you and will stand up for you is really the way to go, no matter the situation. And in public accounting, I knew that those people weren't there. So I had to find something else. Mm-hmm. And Annette, I think you and I have talked about this before. When Condoleezza Rice came to speak in Breakline, she said something like, we have this conceit that the folks that we choose as mentors and allies and supporters and champions, that they have to look like us. And she said, Mm -hmm. if I had insisted upon that, my kitchen cabinet would have been really empty, you know, as I started my career. Right. And the same, like, I imagine for you, as you were getting started at Facebook, you know, you're looking around, you don't see a lot of people like you. How there were 11. Yes, 11. There were 11. We're okay, so out of, four, out of 1,400. <laughs> yeah, so we're all uh, in the kitchen. <laughs> Jack it up. So how did you, you just talked about having a really strong base of support. Yeah. How did you cultivate that? Where did you look for folks who would be there for you? How did you attract them to you so that when you needed them, they were really there? I think it was, I didn't really look for them because I never have. It was more around me doing a good job for them and showing up for them and being honest with them and being real with them. And that's how I got the Dan Roses and the Javier Levans and the Chris Coxes and, you know, Naomi Gleitz and I could go on, right? All those folks became my cabinet and really, my cabinet is around who has my back more so than advice. Not that I don't need it, but I, I get it from different ways. I get it from observing. I get it from a whole bunch of different people, right? And seeing how the actions and, you know, through coaching. 
but it was showing up for them and doing a great job for them and helping them be better. Therefore, <laughs> they wanted me around until that relationship started building. And then once, once I have that relationship, it's for life. And so being able to have that is really what's the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Will you talk to us about your general experience at Facebook? I mean, I think about the growth trajectory yeah. when you were there, yeah. which was just as helter skelter out of control, yeah. you know, crazy hyper growth. And you got there not having come from that type of environment. It's like, I, I envision you sort of like dropping in, <laughs> like having to get your bearings in this really wild environment. And then you thrived there for a decade. Can you yeah. talk to us about that? Yeah, of course. I did have startup experience before I got there. And so that helped because I'd worked in, you know, the Valley and startup space. And I also was older than literally everyone. And that actually helped too, because again, that confidence came with like, I've done this before. But really when we started, we were at, you know, 1601 California, all in this one building. And so it was, you know, if you think about it now, if you guys drive down 101, if you're in the Bay Area, you see all these buildings between Willow and it's now blocks and blocks long. But we started in 1601. And it was, it was interesting because when I started, we were just babies. I mean, the company was just a baby. You know, even with 1,400 people, we were still all kind of going, getting the lunch line together. We were organized in a way that the product leader was Chris and he had 100 PMs reporting to him. I mean, just babies trying to make it through and, and trying to make it through in a world where Mark is literally a genius and he's also a good person. And so how are you, you know, buddy's wicked competitive. And so how are you building this business with me coming in, trying to bring some experience? And I rubbed people the wrong way at the beginning because I was like, I know how to do that. We've done that a hundred times before, um, you know, all of those kinds of things. But it was watching and watching and scale. And I resisted scale too, Bethany. I held on to the early days, even at 5,000 people, I'm trying to still be at 1,400. And so really watching it grow, really watching new products come in, really watching how we hired people Really watching systems evolved was an honor that I didn't know in the moment because you're trying to live it and you're honestly trying to hold on to an Excel spreadsheet because you don't want someone to take that work from you because that work is how I was adding value. Because I could be an accountant and crank out a spreadsheet, I was adding value, right? So how was I holding on to that? And then as time grew, I was able to really evolve and grow and I supported literally the best people in the world. So at one point... I had our chief product officer, our chief marketing officer, our VP of growth, our VP of partnerships, and our VP of ops. That was my job. Every day, I'd literally jump out of bed, get on, you know, sit in two hours to get to work, spend my whole day there, two hours to get home. And every night, I'd ask myself, did I change someone's life today? And if the answer was yes, which it really was, I was so blessed 99% of the time, I could go to sleep and wake up and do it again. The 1% of the time it wasn't, I really self-thought, what did I do today? How did I spend my time? How do I make sure I'm changing someone's life today? And when I left, I left because it was too big. Again, remember this woman holding on at 1,400 people trying to do spreadsheets. So, you know, when you're at 40,000, you're pushing buttons and you're not really, the impact you're having is very different. But even still today, I coach people that I coached there. Mm. I talk to someone from Facebook every single day, every single day. Mm. Annette, I was wondering when you when you made that comment that you were holding on to 1,400 even when you were at 5,000, 
I was wondering if that was about the nature of your relationships. Like you're such a relationship oriented person. Yeah. You, know, you care about someone, you're all in and, and invested. And it's harder, obviously, to be yes. that personal as yes. you grow. Was there an element of that there for you? Absolutely. And the thing was, was I wanted to be the person with the relationship. So I didn't want to hire a team under me. I didn't want to do any of those things because that would have impacted how I spent my time and who I was, who I was caring about and who cared about me. It was both ways. And so that was absolutely a big chunk of it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And really, if I had just stopped and thought about it, you know, right outside of the moment, those relationships are forever, but you can't see it when you're in it. Mm -hmm. The fear of the change. Aren't you so proud of what you did and what you created and the trajectory also that you, you put your sons on? you know, as a, as a widow yeah. for you to have created this foundation for your family is so inspiring and so impressive to me. Yeah. I'm definitely proud of the work I did, but more importantly, the lives I changed and the leaders I made, honestly, there's people that wouldn't have been able to do what they were doing had I not been in their life in those moments. And so that I'm really proud of. And then just being able to raise my boys by myself and to have them be so amazing. I just feel blessed and lucky and proud. When my husband died, we'd been married 19 years. And to be honest, I don't know if I ever told you this, Stephanie, but we were married about five years. And I said, what if we don't have kids? What if we just like kind of hang out? And I got married at 23. So I'm 28 years old going, what if we don't have kids? He said, who would I have to play with? And I said, well, I guess that's a good point. Okay, so... We were married 11 years before we had my son and my oldest son. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. Again, 23 to 35, hanging out. We were in the food business. I was a waitress before starting work. And so um, so then he got sick. And when he got sick, it was really hard, you know, watching someone you love like that wither away. Cancer's a terrible disease. And then when he died, I was trying to do everything I was always doing. I was trying to do, I was on boards and I was volunteering and I was doing all these things. And then... One day, God said, and I believe he said to me out in front of my house, I'm on the phone trying to figure out where Tyler's going to go so I can fly to some small city in somewhere to go sit on some board meeting that, by the way, I didn't even like that much. And so, you know, I've got Sam's going to Ian's house. Where's Ty going? And God said, stop. Do you have a choice right now? You either are going to raise your kids and you're, that's your legacy. And you're going to make sure that they grow up to be great men, or you're going to keep running off, finding them off, doing all these things and take your chances. So that was my last board meeting. I buckled down and I really focused on raising my kids. And so my volunteer work is soccer mom and classroom mom. And so I still could find ways, but I am more part of that, proud of that choice. Even though I was lucky enough to get Facebook and all that and, you know, again, pay for their college and hopefully they'll have enough to put a down payment on a house and all that stuff. I was really, I'm really more proud of the fact that I could stop and say, This is what's best for them, even if it's not best for me. I didn't get married again. I didn't do any of those things because my job at that point was to raise these kids to integrate men. I believe deeply in legacy. Everything we do has to matter, just has to matter. And whether it matters to you, whether it matters to your family, whether it matters to your friend, it doesn't matter. It just has to matter. Mm -hmm. And so I try to think about that every single day so I can and leave that behind. And my sons are part of that. Thank you for sharing that story. Annette, and when you were talking about being in that moment where you were 
super busy and distracted and you sort of had this choice, you and your husband had a really epic love affair, like very happy, loving marriage and losing him so early was devastating. I remember I had a, a, a also a, a loss of someone very close to me. And I, I remember I was talking to a pastor and she said, you can deal with this now, or you can deal with this 20 years from now, but you got to deal with it. And I, in that moment, I was like, I don't want to touch this pain because it's so overwhelming, but I also don't want it following me for the next 20 years as something that I have to deal with that I'm trying to ignore, but can't because it's so huge. It, was that part of the decision for you too? You know, just the... Yeah, but I chose the second way. So I think one day, I, I really actually think one day I'm going to crack. Yeah. I, I mean, in, in a crack in a sense of like, shit, this is real. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Because I literally kept going, yeah. I told you this before, I went to work two days, he died on yeah. Saturday, I went to work on Monday because our chief people officer was coming into town and I wasn't going to let them down. And, you know, and then I had the kids and then you know, my daily prayers, I, I just prayed every day. I'd live long enough to get Tyler to college because if he could get to college, you know, then he'll be fine. And so to me, I mean, honestly, every day is a bonus right now because that was my, yeah, he's my youngest. That was every, every day is a bonus because he started college in August. So not that I want to go and not that the kids want me to go, but I know at least they can survive. And so now it's like, okay, but now he's got to get out of college and I think when he, when he graduates, I'm going to have to like go meditate somewhere and figure it out because, you know, I just, people would say, how do you keep going? And I said, what's my choice? I could lay in bed, crawl in a bowl. Like the kids are going to get fed. They're not going to get to school. And so every day I have that every day I have that. What's my choice. I think it for, you know, that advice becomes when you don't have a, what's my choice, what do you do? And so that's why I keep working and that's why I keep doing this. And that's why I keep engaging and because I don't want the day to come that says, what's my choice? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your resilience is so remarkable, you know, just, and it is what's my choice, but you are making the choice, you know, to live, yeah. to keep living. And that's yeah. very, very hard to do. hundred percent, hundred percent. You talked at Envoy how, what, what you think about a lot right now is creating the circumstances in which we can help our workforce come back into the office. And this is really important to you for a whole variety of different reasons. Will you talk to us about why, why in this, in this era of COVID where there's so much isolation, why do you think it's important for folks to come back and and be together? This is my like passion. I'm, I'm all over this. I think the first thing that starts is we just have to stop living in fear. Everyone is so afraid all the time, afraid of getting sick, afraid of someone getting sick. I'm saying, I'm not saying it's not real. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying though, is when we let fear take over, we make such poor decisions, right? Versus trying to make good decisions. So that is like foundationally, I want people to stop living in fear and I want them to take over on how COVID is going to affect our lives versus COVID telling us you can't leave your house. You can't go to the store. You've got to wipe down your groceries. All that could be true, but I want it to be my choice. I want it to be your choice, not some diseases choice, first and foremost. Second of all, if we look at mental health, if we look at what's happening to people being in their house all the time, I have friends who actually, I have one of my dearest friends has a husband who's actually really sick. 
he can't find a doctor. He can't find a doctor because of the rise in mental health from people being home. And think about our children. We can read all the data that says our kids are getting behind every single day. And yet no one seems to care in government or, right, because teachers are living in fear because if they go, they could get sick. And then finally, and most importantly, kids coming out of college don't want to sit in their house, right? They don't want to sit in their house. My boys love their video games, but they aren't sitting there all day, eight hours a day, not connecting with anyone sitting in their house. So how are we dealing with the workforce of the future? Oh, and let me add on the fact that if you, at some point, people are going to go in the office and it might not be you, but then you are going to have to figure out how you are as connected as the people in the office. I have my own team here and I am telling you all, I understand bias. I have created inclusion trainings. I know that it shouldn't be the people around you, but the people that I am close to today, closest to today are the people that come in this office, sit with me, that I can turn to the right and say, okay, we got to go on a whiteboard and jam on this thing. Unstructured problem solving cannot happen if you are not together. And the people that are in part of that unstructured problem solving are the ones that actually are building better products that are getting closer to leadership. And we all can say that that's not true, but it's true. It's true even in a Facebook where you had a headquarters and a satellite office. Every time I coach someone or talk to someone in that satellite office, all they talked about was their career and how they felt like they were behind the people in headquarters. Now imagine that you're at home by yourself, not connecting at all. It doesn't need to be five days a week. That's too much because that world is gone. But you need to have a way to have a hybrid and to get into the office so that you can make those human connections. You can have unstructured problem solving. You can have unstructured laughter. You can have all those things that you can't get in a 30-minute Zoom. If we don't solve for this, somebody in two years will be solving for it. It'll, it, it can't stay like this. And so trying to get people to think that through and be proactive is hard, but that's what my mission is right now. And that part of what you were referencing is being strategic with your own career yeah. and your own professional acceleration yeah. and being clear about the fact that that does involve proximity to leadership 100%. and it does involve proximity to your team. My CEO here, obviously, he believes this inside out all the way around because that's a company he built. But when I first started here, I said I was going to come Tuesday through Thursday. And he was like, well, why not Monday and Friday? I'm like, Friday, I'm swimming. I was been a, on a weight loss journey and I started Weight Watchers and swimming. And I'm like, Friday, I'm swimming, but I'm going to come Monday. So early in when I was here, like probably early December, I'd started November 1st. I was here on a Monday and the CEO and the CFO were talking behind me. And I'm just sitting away at my desk. And all of a sudden they said, hey, Nat, come join this conversation. That could not have happened if I weren't here. And that happens a lot, which means I would not be part of the decision-making for what happens in this company. And so I get to be involved in things, not just people things, right? But we talk about everything because I am here and around. And so I honestly know it's true. I honestly know that if you are not close, it will somehow affect you in the long run. Mm-hmm. But it's getting people to see because the trade they feel like is pretty high right now. Yeah. One of the elements of the in-person experience that you've also thought about is just more broad-based for our society. Yes. You know, and the, yeah. And the, the trend that we're seeing toward isolation, toward division, toward some, some kinds of tribalism and factionism. Yes. 
Will you talk to us about yeah, I mean, about that and the role that business can play there? Think about the world. If, if you guys think about wherever your last experience is when where you were part of something outside of your house, okay? Whatever that was, stop and pause. Now imagine the people that you are around. They all didn't look like you. They all didn't sound like you. They all might've believed what you believed depending on where you were, but you had some variety. There were parents they were single, they were young, they were old, they were black, they were white, they were purple, they were yellow, they were green, they were blue, right? All of that was there. Now take yourself back to your house. All of a sudden, you're seeing your family, you're seeing your closest friends, and you're seeing people on Zoom. And then imagine that over a year's time. All of a sudden, your opportunity to be just even physically around people different than you some more interesting, some less interesting. All of a sudden, that's shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Your comfort level starts shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Imagine a world where now we've got all these little mini tribes running around with people that actually look and feel the same. That can't be healthy. It can't be healthy, right? It can't be healthy. It can't be, we've done all this work to get out of that. We've done all this work to get out of having segregated neighborhoods and all these things. And all of a sudden, it's going to go back to that, not because anyone said somebody couldn't do that, but because what we become comfortable with. Whereas when you get in an office, hopefully you all believe in the same mission and what you're doing, but people are different than you. And you're learning stuff that you wouldn't get to learn. And you don't learn that on Zoom, even if it's the exact same company. There is no time for that. You literally start a meeting at 10.30, you end it at 11, and the next one starts at 11. To 11.30, you walk to your kitchen, you get lunch, you bring it back for the Zoom meeting at 12. It's just not how we're meant to be. Mm-hmm. Annette, I'm going to start adding in some questions from the folks who are here today. And one is from Elizabeth, and she wanted to ask a little bit more about the mentors that you have and how how you develop those relationships. You already talked about performance first and showing up and knocking the cover off the ball for these folks. And that, that functioned as a magnet and they came to you. They wanted to support you once they realized that they had a superstar on their hands as those relationships deepened and became more complex and nuanced. Were there other, other ways that you focused on nurturing them and building them and strengthening them over time? Yeah, I think it's just about continuing to build the friendship. So, you know, when I'm thinking of this, I'm thinking of, for example, Don Fall. Before I take any offer, I ping Don and say, should I take this offer? And he sends me all these spreadsheets with all this math. And I'm like, just tell me what to say. And he says, go ask for this. You know, I mean, it's, it just becomes that where, and it's the same. If he needs some advice, he calls me and it's, it's that mutual. I don't, I honestly can't think of any one way relationships I have where I'm calling someone just for advice. I know that there's, you will hear people talk about, board of trustees. And I think that works for lots of people, right? I think that works for me. I have to have it both ways. And so most of mine come from where I'm either giving advice or getting advice. And usually it's about real life stuff. I'm generally pretty confident in my decisions in the sense that like, what's the worst that could happen? You just make a change. It doesn't matter. Like you, you know, even down to picking a job, if I love the job, great. If I don't, I'm going to go find another one. I just think that we have to, you know, be not afraid of the risk of choice. But when it comes to like, you know, the harder stuff, I do ping people, but it's people that have that two-way relationship, which is really important Mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. I was just noting 
in the chat that we sometimes forget that the folks that we look up to are just people who can 100%. also use, you know, our interest and our check-ins on them and, you know, and our kindness toward them and our appreciation. Yeah. We sometimes forget that it's not all a one-way street in terms yeah. of value going from them to us. Yeah. It's a really great reminder. So Madeline has a question and she's asking, in your experience, what are some of the best ways that you've found to truly get a pulse check on inclusivity and engagement at work, both as an individual and as a leader? And I think that this is so important, Annette, because your experience at Facebook was a good example where you had all these really tight personal relationships and then the company's scaling really fast. And it's impossible to have that much of a read on every single person yeah. as you expand like that. Yeah. How do you or how can we as, as up and coming leaders, how can we make sure that we have an ear to the ground in a yeah. way that really gives us clarity on how the folks we work around are feeling? Yeah, I think you have to ask people. You have to just spend time with them. You have to ask them and understand when you guys are thinking about what you want to do next, make sure you're asking the kind of questions of who gets to be in the decision tree? Who's sitting around the table? How would I have an opportunity to be a part of that in the future, right? And I think just asking people, what programs do you have? So one of the things I did at Facebook was I worked with this lovely woman named Trudy. I met on an airplane and we actually created a class together around inclusion. And, you know, the thing with Facebook was they were so talking about diversity. And I said, but if you bring in all this talent and no one feels included, it doesn't matter. And so, you know, what can you do to drive programs of change, right? How can you work with leadership to make those changes? So just talk to people and ask lots of questions and make sure that you data, use your brain for the answers, but also your heart, right? You know if that what they're saying is like, okay, that doesn't really make sense. Don't have your brain make it feel okay. Now you can make a choice to go and do that because that's the choice you want to make, but don't let your brain go tell your heart something that you know is not true to make a decision that you then won't feel accountable for. Mm -hmm. And that that reminds me of there's a Stanford professor named Frank Flynn who has done a ton of research into employment benefits. And he said the most important thing that we can do as leaders is ask people what they want. Don't presume, agree with that. Yeah. 100%. Don't presume that it's the snacks, you know, or the ping pong table, like actually get out there and have the conversation. Sometimes we avoid that because we're worried about what might come up, but it's really important uh, yeah. to have the I mean, clarity. We did. I also helped create a recognition training and what we did, what we taught the managers was you need to ask. You're, you're trying to sit and figure out what recognition means to every individual. So for myself, it was never a promotion. I never cared about that. And it's hard for me even now when people on my own team, when they're talking about those kind of things, because I'm like, that just doesn't matter, which is not fair because it matters to them. Then I know that. But I didn't care about that. What I cared about was being included in a meeting. What I cared about was someone coming and talking to me. What I cared about was being in the right place because someone pulled me in. That was recognition to me. And so those kinds of things you need to ask about, but you also need to own and say about for yourself. You can't sit and say, God, I don't feel recognized when you've never had a conversation with those around you to tell them what it means. If you tell them and they don't do it, then you can go back and say, I do not feel recognized because we had this conversation and you're not including me. Quick story, Dan Rose and I, one time he did something and he said something to me and it was so like almost shocking to me. And, you know, a week later he said, Annette, stop being mad at me. What's wrong with you? And I said, well, you had this meeting and you didn't include me. And then you made it seem like it wasn't a big deal. And you know, it's a big deal. 
It's like, okay, I'm sorry. I won't do that again. Right. But it was like, for him, it was like, well, who cares? You know, I pump you up when I know being in that meeting with him. So every time he had a meeting with Cheryl, he brought me along. And sometimes I talked and sometimes I didn't, but I cared a lot because then I could use the information to change someone else's life. So you have to do both. You have to ask people if you're in the leadership position, but you also have to speak up for what's important to you around recognition, around inclusion, around diversity, what matters to you. You need to be accountable and make sure people know it. Mm, That's such good advice. The self-advocacy point is so critically important. Zachary has a question and I love this one. And I think about this a lot, which is, do you think that the politically correct nature of corporate America prevents people from addressing real issues or problems like race relations? I think about this from the sense that our our rhetoric has become so heated, you know, and at the same time, we're, you know, we're, we're really dividing ourselves into different groups and tribes and it's all about us versus them. Yes. When in fact life is really gray, but if we raise the stakes so high for what a conversation needs to be and how it needs to unfold. My fear is that people are just going to remove themselves because it starts to feel like a threat rather than yeah. an opportunity. But I'd love to hear, hear your take on Zachary's question, which I think is so crucially important to the discourse today. Yeah, I, yes, the answer is yes. I do think so. I think what's happening is fear. Again, going back to living that fear, fear of saying the wrong thing, fear of doing the wrong thing. Fear is what's leading how we have the conversations. And so we don't have the conversations that we should. I think it was here, here, and we got to get here. And somehow we have to be able to get in the mail to be able to say some of those things. We got to drive change and use action to drive change. It's not even just talking anymore either. You know, we just need to drive some change. I also just think, Annette, I mean, we're all adults and these are hard conversations, but they're hard partly because they're so important. And we have a responsibility to get in the ring. And so just because you're afraid of how someone might react or what the blowback might be, that's no excuse in my view. I agree, but but the problem is the consequences are real. Yeah. Right? So I, I totally agree with you on that. Again, not living in fear, but you also need to be realistic about the fact that if I say this thing and they respond this way, they actually won't respond this way to my face. They'll respond this way in a performance meeting or with a manager, right, Zachary? Or yeah. you know what I mean? They'll respond this way some other way that's actually not in front of me that I can't mm-hmm. deal with. That's mm-hmm. what we think about, right? So like, I hear you, but it's, it's again, finding those allies, finding those people that can reinforce what you're saying right? Mm-hmm. Finding people that will stand for you yes. is just so important. Yes. Coming back to like that, the critical nature of having a foundation of support as yep. a professional, we all yep. need that. Absolutely. And we especially need it when we're in a, a tough moment, you know, and that tends yep. to be the moments where the rats leave the shit. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Unless they're really invested in you. Yeah, 100%. Um, Annette, I know we're coming up on time here. And in our last few minutes, so you have Sam, your son, is is sort of poised to enter the workforce. Ty has a few more God years. God willing, yes. yes. <laughs> Ty has a few more years. <laughs> Get off the but, payroll, brother. <laughs> exactly. But I think that you're, 
your hopes for them and your advice to them at this point in their life could also be really useful for the breakline community as well. You know, what, what are you hoping for them as they, as they think about themselves as professionals and what advice are you giving to them at this juncture? Yeah. My hope for them and for all of you is that you stay true to yourself when you're looking. My boys have been raised, you, you know, you've got a little flavor of Annette in the last hour to believe in themselves, to be confident. It doesn't mean they always are, but I want them to hold that. I want them to know that they're good enough and they're great enough and they're even better most of the time. And so how, you know, you're going out to, to do that work and then Everything we do matters. Legacy is the most important gift we can leave behind. And legacy is defined by so many things. For me, it's my children. It's all the people I've coached. It's every friendship I've had. It's how I spend all of my time thinking about. And I would just really implore all of you to really think deeply about what you're giving, how you're spending your time. I treat my kids, you know, to be intentional, that their friendships matter and that what they do matters. And, you know, if, if it's not going to matter, don't spend time on it. I'm so lucky to have had the father I had. I mean, he taught us so, so, so much. Um, I'm so lucky to have the husband I had. I still call him my husband, you know, and he's been gone 15 years, but all of that, I am here in service to, to someday joining them in the, you know, great place in the sky. Again, it's what I believe. But really just being in service. Um, one of the one of my motto is in service with the point of view. And that's what I, for the teams that I lead, we are in service to the company. We are in service to the people around us, but we show up with a point of view. And so that's too what I tell my boys is, you know, there's times you got to listen before you speak or speak before you listen, but always know that what you leave behind is what matters and it better be good and it better be great and it better matter. It better be great and it better matter. Thank you so much, Annette. I think you all can see why Annette is such a dear friend, mentor, sponsor, and ally of mine and to the entire Breakline community. We're so grateful, Annette, that you chose to join us today. We know you have no time. So for you to carve out some time for us is is, really special. Thank you. I feel very blessed to have spent time with you today. If you have questions or you want to um, look at my website to come work here or you know if you just want advice down the road please 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 ping me I'm always always happy to have a conversation all right all thank right. you so Take much care. Annette See happy afternoon everyone bye, bye. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.